Chapter Thirty, Part Two of *The Heir of Redcliffe*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *The Heir of Redcliffe* by Charlotte Young. Chapter Thirty, Part Two. There were times when, as Philip had once said, good temper annoyed him more than anything, and perhaps he was unconsciously disappointed at having lost his old power of fretting and irritating guy and watching him champ the bit so as to justify his own opinion of him every proceeding of his cousin seemed to give him annoyance more especially their being at home together and guys seeming to belong more to hollywell than himself he sat by with a book and watched them as guy asked for laura's letter and amy came to look over his half-finished answer laughing over it and giving her commands and messages messages looking so full of playfulness and happiness as she stood with one hand on the back of her husband's chair and the other holding the letter and guy watching her amused face and answering her remarks with lively words and bright smiles people who looked no deeper on the surface would say what a well-mannered pair thought philip and no doubt they were very happy poor young things if it would but last here guy turned and asked him a question about the line of perpetual snow as much in his own style that he was almost ready to accuse them of laughing at him next came what hurt him most of the whole world was welcome to admire her nothing would injure his hold on her heart and no joke of charles could shake his confidence but it was hard that she should be forced to hear such things and ask no questions for they evidently thought him occupied with his book and did not intend him to listen the next thing they said, however, obliged him to show that he was attending, for it was about her being better. Who? Laura? he said, in a tone that, in spite of himself, had a startled sound. You did not say she had been ill. No, she is not, said Amy. Dr. Mayern said there was nothing really the matter, but she has been worried and out of spirits lately, and Mamma thought it would be good for her to go out more. Philip would not let himself sigh in spite of the oppressing consciousness of having brought the cloud over her, and of his own inability to do aught but leave her to endure it in silence and patience. Alas, for how long! Obliged, meanwhile, to see these young creatures placed by the mere factitious circumstance of wealth in possession of happiness, which they had not had time either to earn or to experience, he thought it shallow because of their mirth and gaiety as if they were only seeking food for laughter finding it in mistakes for which he was ready to despise them arnaud had brought rather anticipated notions of the renewal of his office as a courier his mind had hardly opened to railroads and steamers and changes had come over hotels since his time guy and amabel both young and healthy caring little about bad dinners and unwilling to tease the old man by complaints or alterations of his arrangements had troubled themselves little about the matter took things as they found them ate dry bread when the cookery was bad walked if the road was shocking went away the sooner if the inns were intolerable made merry over every inconvenience and turned it into an excellent story for charles they did not even distress themselves about sights which they had missed seeing philip thought all this very foolish and absurd showing that they were unfit to take care of themselves and that guy was neglectful of his wife's comforts in short establishing his original opinion of their youth and folly so passed the first evening perhaps the worst because besides what he had heard about laura 
He had been somewhat over-fatigued by various hot days' walks. Certain it is, the next morning he was not nearly so much inclined to be displeased with them for laughing when, in speaking to Anne, he inadvertently called her mistress Miss Amabel. Never mind, said Amy, as Anne departed, and he looked disconcerted, as a precise man always does when catching himself in a mistake. Anne is used to it. Guy is always doing it, and puzzles poor Arnaud sorely by sending him for Miss Amabel's parasol. And the other day, said Guy, when Thorndale's brother at Munich inquired after Lady Morville, I had to consider who she was. Oh, you saw Thorndale's brother, did you? Yes, he was very obliging. Guy had to go to him about our passports, and when he found who we were, he brought his wife to call on us and asked us to an evening party. Did you go? Guy thought we must, and it was very entertaining. We had a curious adventure there. In the morning, we had been looking at those beautiful windows of the great church when I turned round and saw a gentleman, an Englishman, gazing with all his might at Guy. We met again in the evening, and presently Mr. Thorndale came and told us it was Mr. Shane. Shane the painter? Yes. He had been very much struck with Guy's face. It was exactly what he wanted for a picture he was about, and he wished, of all things, just to be allowed to make a sketch. Did you submit? Yes, said Guy, and we were rewarded. I never saw a more agreeable person, or one who gave so entirely the impression of genius. The next day, he took us through the gallery and showed us all that was worth admiring. And in what character is he to make you appear? That is the strange part of it, said Amabel. Don't you remember how Guy once puzzled us by choosing Sir Galahad for his favorite hero? It is that very Sir Galahad, when he kneels to adore the Saint Griot. Mr. Shen said he had long been dreaming over it, and at last, as he saw Guy's face looking upwards, it struck him that it was just what he wanted. It would be worth anything to him to catch the expression. I wonder what I was looking like, ejaculated Guy. Did he take you as yourself, or as Sir Galahad? As myself, happily. How did he succeed? Amy likes it, but decidedly I should never have known myself. Ah, said the wife. Could some fay the gifty gee us to see ourselves as others see us? As far as the sunburnt visage is concerned, the glass does that every morning. Yes, but you don't look at yourself exactly as you do at a painted window, said Amy in her demure way. I cannot think how you found time for sitting, said Philip. Oh, it is quite a little thing, a mere sketch, done in two evenings and half an hour in the morning. He promises it to me when he's done with Sir Galahad, said Amy. Two, three evenings. You must have been a long time at Munich. A fortnight, said Guy. There's a great deal to see there. Philip did not quite understand this, nor did he think it very satisfactory that they should have lingered in a gay town, but he meant to make the best of them today and return to his usual fashion of patronizing and laying down the law. They were so used to this that they did not care about it. Indeed, they had reckoned on it, and the most amiable conduct to be expected on his part. The day was chiefly spent in an excursion on the lake, landing at the most beautiful spots, walking a little way and admiring, or while in the boat, smoothly moving over the deep blue waters, gaining lovely views of the banks, and talking over the book with which their acquaintance had begun. I promessi sposi. Never did tourists spend a more serene and pleasant day. On comparing notes as to their plans, it appeared that each party had about a week or ten days to spare, the captain before he must embark for Corfu, 
and Sir Guy and Lady Morville before the time had been fixed for returning home. Guy proposed to go together somewhere, spare the post office and further blunders, and get the Signor Capitano to be their interpreter. Philip thought it would be an excellent thing for his young cousins for him to take charge of them and show them how people ought to travel. So out came his little pocket map, marked with his route, before he left Ireland, whereas they seemed to have no fixed object but to be always going somewhere. It appeared that they had thought of Venice, but were easily diverted from it by his design of coasting the eastern bank of the Lago di Como, and so across the Stelvio into the Tyrol, altogether as far as Botzen, whence Philip would turn southward by the mountain paths while they would proceed to Innsbruck on their return home. Amabel was especially pleased to stay a little longer on the banks of the lake and to trace out more of Lucia's haunts, and if she secretly thought it would have been pleasure without a third person, she was gratified to see how much Guy's manner had softened Philip's injustice and distrust, making everything so smooth and satisfactory that at the end of the day she told her husband that she thought his experiment had not failed. She was making the breakfast the next morning when the captain came into the room and she told him Guy was gone to settle their plans with Arnaud. After lingering a little by the window, Philip turned, and with more abruptness than was usual with him, said, You don't think there's any cause of anxiety about Laura? No, certainly not, said Amy, surprised. She has not been looking well lately, but Dr. Mayern says it is nothing, and, you know, she blushed and looked down. There were many things to make this a trying time. Is she quite strong? Can she do as much as usual? She does more than ever. Mama is only afraid of her overworking herself, but she never allows that she is tired. She goes to school three days in a week, besides walking to East Hill on Thursday to help in the singing, and she is getting dreadfully learned. Guy gave her his old mathematical books, and Charlie always calls her Miss Parabola. Philip was silent knowing too well why she sought to stifle care and employment, and feeling embittered against the whole world, against her father, against his own circumstances, against the happiness of others, nay, perhaps against the providence which had made him what he was. Presently Guy came, and the first thing he said was, I'm afraid we must give up our plan. How? exclaimed both Philip and Amy. I have just heard that there is a fever at Sondrio, and all that neighborhood, and every one says, it would be very foolish to expose ourselves to it. What shall we do instead? said Amy. I told Arnaud we could let him know in an hour's time. I thought of Venice. Venice, oh yes, beautiful. What do you say, Philip? said Guy. I say that I cannot see any occasion for our being frightened out of our little journey. If a fever prevails among the half-starved peasantry, it need not affect well-fed healthy persons merely passing through the country. You see, we could hardly manage without sleeping there, said Guy. We must sleep either at Colico or at Madonna. Now Colico, they say, is the most unhealthy place at this time of year, and Madonna is the very heart of the fever. Sondrio not much better. I don't see how it is to be safely done, and though very likely we might not catch a fever, I don't see the, any use in trying. That is making yourself a slave to the fear of infection. I don't know what purpose would be answered by running the risk, said Guy. If you chose to give it so dignified a name as a risk, said Philip. I don't, then, said Guy, smiling. I should not care if there was any reason for not going there, but as there is not, I shall face Mr. Edmonstone better if I don't run Amy into any more chances of mischief. 
is amy grateful for the care said philip after all her wishes for the eastern bank amy is a good wife said guy for venice then i'll ring for a nod you will come with us won't you philip no thank you i always intended to see the valetaline and an epidemic among the peasantry does not seem to me to be sufficient to deter oh philip you surely will not said amy my mind is made up amy thank you i wish you would be persuaded said guy i should like particularly to have you to lionize us there and i don't fancy you're running into danger the argument lasted long philip by no means approved of venice especially after the long loitering at munich thinking that in both places there was danger of guy's being led into mischief by his musical connections therefore he did his best for amabel's sake to turn them from their purpose persuaded in his own mind that the fever was a mere bugbear raised up by arnaud and perhaps in his full health and strength almost regarding illness itself as a foible far more the dread of it he argued therefore in his most provoking strain becoming more vexatious as the former annoyance was revived at finding the impossibility of making guy swerve from his purpose while additional mists of suspicion arose before him making him imagine that the whole objection was caused by guy's dislike to submit to him and a fit of the impatience of which amy was the victim nay that his cousin wanted to escape from his surveillance and follow the beat of his inclinations and the whole heap of prejudices and half-refuted accusations presumed their full ascendancy never had his manner been more vexatious though without departing from the coolness which always characterized it but all the time guy while firm and unmoved in purpose kept his temper perfectly and apparently without effort even amabel glowed with indignation at the assumption with which she was striving to put her husband down though she rejoiced to see its entire failure for some sensible argument or some gay lively good-humoured reply was the utmost she could elicit guy did not seem to be in the least irritated or ruffled by their very behaviour which used to cause him so many struggles having once seriously said that he did not think it right to run into danger without adequate cause he held his position with so much ease that he could afford to be playful and laugh at his own dread of infection his changeableness and credulity never had temper been more entirely subdued for surely if he could bear this he need never fear himself again so passed the hour and amabel was heartily glad when the debate was closed by arnaud's coming for orders guy went to him amabel began to collect her goods and philip after a few moments reflection spoke in the half compassionate half patronizing manner with which he used now and then to let fall a few crumbs of counsel or commendation for silly little amy well amy you yielded very amiably and that is the only way you will always find it best to submit he got no further in his intended warning against the dissipations of venice for her eyes were fixed on him at first with a look of extreme wonder then her face assumed an expression of dignity and gently but gravely she said i think you forget to whom you are speaking the gentlemanlike instinct made him reply i beg your pardon and there he stopped as much taken by surprise as if a dove had flown in his face he actually was confused for in very truth he had after a fashion forgotten that she was lady morville not the cousin amy with whom guy's character might be freely discussed he had often presumed as far with his aunt but she though always turning the conversation had never given him a rebuff amabel had not done and in her soft voice firmly though not angrily she spoke on one thing i wish to say because we shall never speak on this subject again and i was always afraid of you before 
You have always misunderstood him, I might almost say chosen to misunderstand him. You have tried his temper more than any, and never appreciated the struggles that have subdued it. It is not because I am his wife that I say this. Indeed, I am not sure it becomes me to say it, yet I cannot bear that you should not be told of it, because you think he acts out of enmity to you. You little know how your friendship has been his first desire, how he, was, he has striven for it, how... After all you have done and written, he defended you with all his might when those at home were angry, how he sought you out on the purpose to try to be real cordial friends. Philip's face had grown rigid, and chiefly at the words, those at home were angry. It is not that I prevent that friendship, said he. It is his own want of openness. My opinion has never changed. No, I know it has never changed, said Amy in a tone of sorrowful displeasure. Whenever it does, you will be sorry you have judged him so harshly. She left the room, and Philip held her in higher esteem. He saw there was spirit and substance beneath that soft, girlish exterior, and hoped she would better be able to endure the troubles which her precipitate marriage was likely to cause her. But as her husband, his combined fickleness and obstinacy had only become more apparent than ever, fickleness in forsaking his purpose, obstinacy in adherence to his own will. Displeased and contemptuous, Philip was not softened by Guy's freedom and openness of manner and desire to help him as far as their roads lay together. He was gracious only to Lady Morville, whom he treated with kindness, intended to show that he was pleased with her for a reproof which became her position well, though it could not hurt him. Perhaps she thought his amiability especially insufferable, for when she arrived at Verena, her chief thought was that here they should be free of him. Come, Philip, said Guy, at that last moment. I wish you would think better of it after all, and come with us to Milan. Thank you. My mind is made up. Well, mind you don't catch the fever, for I don't want the trouble of nursing you. Thank you. I hope to require no such services of my friends, said Philip with a proud stem air, implying, I don't want you. Goodbye, then, said Guy. Then, remembering his promise to Laura, he added, I wish we could have seen more of you. They will be glad to hear of you at Hollywell. You have had one warm friend there all along. He was touched for a moment by this kind speech, and his tone was less grave and dignified. Remember me to them when you write, he answered, and tell Laura she must not wear herself out with her studies. Goodbye, Amy. I hope you will have a pleasant journey. The farewells were exchanged, and the carriage drove off. Poor little Amy, said Philip to himself, how she is improved. He has... A sweet little wife in her, the fates have conspired to crown him with all man can desire, and little marvel if he should abuse his advantages. Poor little Amy, I have less hope than ever, since even her evident wishes could not bend his determination in this trifle, but she is a good little creature, happy in her blindness, may it long continue. It is my uncle and aunt who are to be blamed." He set himself to ascend the mountain path, and they looked back, watching the firm, vigorous steps with which he climbed the hillside, then stood to wave his hand to Emma Bell, looking a perfect specimen of health and activity. "'Just like himself,' said Amy, drawing so long a breath that Guy smiled but did not speak. "'Are you much vexed?' said she. "'I don't feel as if I had the most of my opportunities. Then, if you have not, I can tell you who has.' What do you think of his beginning to give me a lecture how to behave to you? Did he think you wanted it very much? I don't know. Of course, I could not let him go on. Guy was so much diverted by the idea of her wanting a lecture on 
wife-like deportment that he had no time to be angry at the impertinence and he made her laugh also by his view that was all force of habit now guido good cavalier guido do grant me one satisfaction said she coaxingly only say you are very glad he has gone his own way on the contrary i am sorry he is running his head into a fever said guy pretending to be provoking i don't want you to be glad about that i only want you to be glad he is not sitting here towering over us guy smiled and began to whistle cock up your beaver and cock through brush end of chapter thirty part two